Good morning, everybody. <laughs> My name is Chris McLaughlin. I'm the uh, discipleship pastor here at Stones. I'm just uh, privileged to be able to come up here and preach God's word to you today. Um, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter in Jeremiah. Now, um, I want to start today just by talking about this. You realize that when you're excited about something, when you're passionate about something, that you can't stop talking about it, right? I mean, you, you realize this. This is just a reality of who we are. Like, when we get so pumped up about something, we see something really exciting, we're, we're really passionate about it, we just love to tell other people about this thing, right? So think about it this way. Um, so it, it, anybody sports fans in the house? Yes? Okay. Uh, who watched the Colts game last night? Okay, how can you not stop talking about that after last night, right? Okay, or how about uh, if you find like a really great uh, exercise plan? You're like, man, this is so cool and you are just totally into this. You just want to tell other people about it. Okay, so for me, I am a gigantic nerd. Um, I love all of these comic book movies that are out right now. I mean, this is kind of the ideal age for the nerd right now with all these movies that are out. And uh, when... Just a few months ago, back in the summer, when Avengers Infinity War came out, a bunch of guys from my D group and some other friends, we all went to see the movie. And I was so pumped about this. I was like, oh man, this is going to be so great. And you get in there and we watch the movie and it was like mind-blowing and like the ending was ridiculous and all this stuff. Now, I'm not going to give away any spoilers if you haven't seen it or whatever. But uh, I was just like so blown away. So as guys, you know, we, we were all talking about it. We're like, man, that was crazy. And this happened, that happened. And I wanted to keep talking about it. I went home and I wanted to talk about it with, with my wife, but she hadn't seen it yet. And I knew that she wanted to see it. But if I, if I said too much, I knew I was going to give it away. So I remember she came to me. She's like, so how was the movie? And I'm like, okay, what do I say? Like, what do I do? So, so I'm like, I think I said something to the effect of, um, yeah, it was good. And then I left it at that because I didn't want to say anything else because <laughs> it was just so crazy. So, um, so when we get excited about something, here's, the, the point is that we, we just want to talk about it. We get so energized about telling other people about this thing. And I think the exact same thing is true of the gospel. The exact same thing is true and really should be true for every Christian, that the gospel is that, that one thing that is so powerful, that is so life-transforming, that we can't help but talk about it. That should be the reality for every Christian. Now, this passage in Jeremiah that we're going to look at is really Jeremiah's story about this, about how he came to this place of of really realizing that God's word was so powerful, was so life-transforming, that he couldn't help but talk about it, that he couldn't help but deliver this message. So before we read the passage, I want to give you just a little bit of context as to what's going on in this story. Now see, Israel had, as a nation, had experienced a civil war. And this civil war, uh, Scott talked about this just a few weeks ago. The civil war caused the nation to divide into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now Israel, by the time that Jeremiah was around, Israel had already been destroyed, the northern kingdom. The Assyrians had come in and wiped it out. But the southern kingdom of Judah was still intact. It lasted another 150 years after the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom. 
And Jeremiah was being called as a prophet to come and speak to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. And really to warn them that judgment was coming. Their sin had become so great that God had decided to bring the Babylonians in to to really to, to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. And only a tenth of them were going to remain. And that tenth, even, they weren't going to be able to stay in in the kingdom of Judah. They were going to actually be exiled to Babylon. Okay, so this is the context where we find Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is given this message of warning to the people. And he goes and he faithfully preaches it. God tells him to even go to the temple gates. All right? This is the epicenter of the religious uh, order in, in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple, at the gates, and he's preaching this message that judgment is coming. And one of the chief priests doesn't like this. He doesn't like this message. So this is where we're going to pick up the story. So if you are willing and able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Jeremiah 20, verses 1 through 13. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And while I give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, he shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. And he continues, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived that we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Sing praise to the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Let's pray. 
Our Father, this morning we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here within us to help us understand and interpret your word rightly. Help us to apply it to our life and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. All right. This passage is really interesting because there's really two sections to this passage, right? The first part of it, verses one through six, is a, is a narrative. It's a story about what's going on with Jeremiah being beaten, being put into the stocks, and then his prophecy against Pashur. And then verses seven through 13 is written a little differently. It's, it's actually in Hebrew, it's written as like kind of a poem. And what this is, is, is it's a, it's, it's Jeremiah's inner wrestling with God. Like he's really in a struggle here about whether or not he's going to remain faithful to preach the word of God. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And it's so honest. It's so real. I mean, you, you hear that, that first passage, verse seven, he says, oh Lord, you have deceived me. Like that's, that's real, <laughs> right? Um, he's very real about all of this. Now, um, the artists back in the time of the Renaissance, they were really moved by the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah throughout his whole book is, uh, he depicts uh, himself and his struggle in this very real, very emotional way. One of my favorite artists is this, um, uh, this guy named Rembrandt and he, he painted uh, a number of things, but he painted this one and this is actually of the prophet Jeremiah. And this painting of Jeremiah is so interesting to me because what you see here is, uh, I mean, just the realism, the, the color that's used, everything is just so cool. But if you zoom in a little bit, we'll go to the next one. And it's kind of hard to see, but you can see that he's leaning his elbow on a book. And in Latin, the, written on the, on, on the edge of that book is the word Bible. And so what's happening here is Jeremiah, he has really committed himself to resting on the word of God. He is leaning on the word of God. That is his firm foundation. That is the foundation of his message. But see, at the same time, Jeremiah is weeping. He's, he's sad because he loves God. He loves the people of God. He loves uh, Jerusalem and the temple and he loves all of these things. But he knows God's judgment is coming. And in fact, in the background, you can see an image of the temple and it's burning. And so he's weeping over the loss of everything that's happened uh, in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom. Now, I, I bring this up because um, I think there's incredible parallels with what we see here in Jeremiah and with us today. Church, we've been given a message. We've been given the gospel message. And just like Jeremiah, we are called to proclaim this message to the world, to a world where judgment is coming, right? We're called to proclaim this message. And yet, we know that this message is going to be rejected by some, that we're going to experience persecution because of this, but we're also called to continue to be faithful to it and be compelled to preach it, just like Jeremiah was. Now, I, I actually love this painting so much. I, I, was, I was really excited. Last Christmas, I got it as a, as a present. I got a print of it. 
And I keep it in my office. Um, and I keep it there because it reminds me of this struggle that we face as Christians every day. That we need to really keep um, faithful to God's word, to God's message, that we're proclaiming that message regardless of what the world says. And that we would continue to do that day in and day out to proclaim this message that he has given us. I think that there are some incredible parallels with what Jeremiah went through and, uh, and with us today. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you really three encouragements that we see from this text. Three things that I think are, uh, are really key for us as Christians today who are called to preach the gospel message to a world that is, uh, that is awaiting judgment. The first thing is this. The gospel is not popular. It's not. The gospel is not popular. So we look at the story, Pashur, the, this chief high priest. I mean, think about this. He is, he is like one of the, the top guys at the temple at, the, at this time, right? Um, he's, a, he's a priest. He's a chief officer. He knows his stuff. But he didn't want to hear about the people of God being sent to Babylon. He didn't want to hear this message. No, see, he, he wanted a positive message about how, oh God, you know, he's going to forgive us for the things we've done wrong. Maybe the things we, we've done wrong haven't been so bad. And so it's not that big of a deal and God's going to pass over those things, but God's going to come and he's going to get our enemies. Like Babylon's coming to get us, but God's going to wipe them out. That's the message that Pashur wanted to hear. But the thing about this is that this was not the truth. God was going to intentionally bring Babylon to destroy Judah and take a tenth of his people away into exile. So Pashur, not, not wanting to hear this, he persecuted Jeremiah. He beat him. He publicly shamed him. He put him in the stocks. And the truth is, is that we don't live in a world that's too much different than this today. The world really wants to hear a positive message uh, for us, a positive message for who we are as people. We don't want to, the world doesn't want to hear about our sin, about our brokenness. It doesn't want to hear about that there's a coming judgment. The world doesn't want to hear these things. And in fact, the Apostle Paul warns his, uh, his disciple Timothy about this same thing. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to what he says. He tells Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, listen to what he says. He says, preach the word. Preach the word. He's calling him to faithfulness to God's word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and when it's not popular. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For listen to this. The time is coming when, a pe when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Church, we don't live in a, in a time that's very different than what Jeremiah had to deal with, with Pashur. The question here is why? Why is it that Pashur, why is it that the people that he's talking about here in 2 Timothy that are not willing to endure sound teaching, why is it that, that they uh, are struggling with this? 
So you see, sin that has corrupted our hearts, sin that has gripped us, has really led us to desire a particular type of message. It's actually led us to a message, led us to a place where we want to desire a message of what we would call autonomy. That we want to do what we want to do and no one's going to tell us any differently, right? I mean, this is the predominant worldview of our culture. Think about this for a second. The people in our, in our world, that's the predominant thing. We're going we're gonna to gain the blessings of God. We're going to merit the good things that, that God has, has, has promised, right? Like, we're going to say, like, what about wealth? What about uh, health and long life? Children? Uh, all of these things that we can just kind of say, yeah, I'm going to go after these things. But God tells us in his word that he's actually responsible for these things and dealing these things out. And so this predominant worldview, this is something that is all over the place in our culture. We hear it all over the place. And it goes right back to Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. What was the big temptation? Think about this. You know, Adam and Eve, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't supposed to eat from that tree. And the serpent comes to deceive them. And what does the serpent say? He says, if you eat of this tree, that you will be like God. That you will be like God. That was the temptation. You fast forward a couple chapters later, and after Noah's Ark and the flood and all that stuff, people began to multiply on the earth again. And what did they do? They wanted to build a glorious human kingdom. This glorious human kingdom without the help of God. And they built this tower, right? That went up to the heavens is what it said. And what's, and what's really uh, pointed out there is that that the people wanted to reach heaven without God's help. They wanted to achieve everything that God wanted to bless them with, wanted to give them, but, but to do it without God. It's this glorious human kingdom without God's help. You guys, we call this today, we call this secular humanism. It's this idea that humanity can solve all its own problems and achieve all of these things and do this without the help of God. We see this in uh, you know, if you, if you watch talk shows, um, talk shows are all about this. It's about how can you achieve your goals, right? It's about how can you be a better human? How can you do this and that and do all the things that you want to do and build your own glorious human kingdom just by sort of picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and doing it, right? How can you do that? Um, you see self-help books and all, I mean, all kinds of stuff. This is the predominant message that we're hearing over and over again in our culture. Now, sadly, what's happened over, really over uh, the last 50, 60 years or so is we, we're seeing a merging of secular humanism with Christianity. And this merging, we can call it Christian humanism. Christian humanism. So instead of saying we can create a grand human kingdom without God's help, in Christian humanism, it's saying we're going to build this grand human kingdom. I'm going to get everything that I want, but we're going to do it with God's help. Okay? Now, really what, what's happening is people are going to passages in Scripture and they're saying, oh, I'm going I'm to take this idea and that, that idea and say like, oh, yeah, God wants me to have all these things and God wants me to, to, to do all of these, this stuff and receive all of these blessings. Um, but they end up taking these these passages out of context to try to claim that for themselves. And, 
that is not the message of Christianity. If we go back to the Tower of Babel story, you know, God confused their language so that they wouldn't build this glorious human kingdom. And the very next chapter, what happens? The very next chapter, he calls a man named Abram, who becomes Abraham. And he calls that man out of a life of sin and idolatry. And he says to him this, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So it's not us building a grand human kingdom. No, God is saying, I'm going to build a kingdom. He's saying, I'm going to build a kingdom and I want to invite you to come and be a part of it. This is a very different thing. This is a very different thing for us. And so you guys, the truth is, is that we will never, we will never be able to self-actualize enough to receive the blessings of God. We will never be able to self-motivate ourselves enough to receive the, the, these blessings of wealth and long life and children and wisdom and peace because these are all things that God is sovereignly in control over and he gives them to who he wills. Our only hope is to trust in the loving kindness of our sovereign Lord who is establishing his kingdom here on earth. And so I want to I, I tell you, this may be challenging for us to think about things in this way. This may be a very dramatic worldview shift for us. But here's the thing. As we live with this worldview in mind, as we live out the gospel, as we preach the gospel to people, we can expect that it's going to be rejected. Because this is not the message that the world wants to hear. And so here's the thing. If you preach the gospel— and you tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, about what he's done, about how he's building this, this kingdom and he's inviting us to be a part of it and you're rejected for it, then let me tell you something. You're actually in good company. Because Jeremiah, man, he, he preached this and he was rejected as well. The gospel is not popular. However, however, even though it's not popular, the gospel actually compels us to continue to preach it. And this is the second thing I want to tell you today. You see, once we're gripped by the love of God, once, we, once we've been transformed by this message of the gospel, oh man, it changes us and we can't stop talking about it. We are so compelled to tell other people about what Jesus has done. Look at chapter, back in uh, Jeremiah 20. Look at verses 7 through 9. I want to read that again. So again, this is Jeremiah wrestling with God, and he's wrestling over this persecution that he, is, uh, that he has gone through. And he says, Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. Can you believe that? Like, look at what he says. He's like, I, he's like, I, I, he's like, I hate this. I hate that when I preach the word that I get mocked, that I get put in the stocks, that I get beaten. I hate this. And he thinks about giving up. Look at verse 9. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, he's actually considering giving up. He's considering stopping because he, he hates what this does to him. 
But then he says this. He says, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That the gospel, the message of God is so compelling to him that it is It is like a fire within him that he cannot contain and he has to talk about it. He has to tell people who God is and what he's done. You know, this is the same for us. The gospel is exactly the same for us. You know, the gospel is not this idea where we're just supposed to just be good, be good little children. Kind of like Santa Claus, right? Be good for goodness sake, right? It's not not like that. The gospel is not this idea that we're just supposed to have all the right political views or that we're just supposed to believe in this idea that, you know, we just believe that Jesus, we assent to the the idea that Jesus died on the cross for us and then we can go about our life. That's not the gospel. But the gospel begins at this idea that there there is a loving and sovereign God who created everything that we see. He created you. He created you to be good and holy. But because sin entered the world, it corrupted us. It corrupted us. And so so his creation that was made to be good and holy and reflect the glory of God has decided to take that glory for ourselves. That we have said, we don't want to give that glory to God, but we want that for us. And so what happens? This is, this is really the great blasphemy of the universe that we have decided to steal glory away from God, the one who truly deserves it. But God sees our hearts and he sees that deep within us that we are stuck, that we are trapped and we cannot get ourselves out of this situation. And so he puts a plan into action to rescue us from this. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ. He lives on this earth Perfectly, He follows the law perfectly. And then he goes to the cross willingly because God, who is not able to spare wrath, wrath that is due to each one of us for the rebellion that we have endured, that we have done against God, that God pours out his wrath on his one and only son, killing him. And so then anybody who places their faith in Christ, receives the benefit and the blessing of the righteousness that Christ has earned. And this great exchange takes place so that the the, the sin that we have committed goes on to the head of Christ and God's wrath is poured out on Christ instead of us. And we receive that righteousness in his place. But the story doesn't end there. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And by raising from the dead, he proved that what he said is true. He proved that that he defeated sin and death. And by proving that, that means that we can have the full assurance that, that when we place our faith in Christ, that we have that righteousness, that we have the righteousness of Christ in us, and that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, that he will see the merit of Christ covering us and that we will be welcomed into this kingdom that God is building. That is the gospel. Why is it, why is it something that, that is like a fire within us? 
Why is it something that we just can't stop talking about? It's because when this gospel message really sinks into our heart, when it really transforms us, man, it, it changes us. It, it explains our reality. It shapes our worldview. It makes us more like Christ. No other message in the world can do this. No other message. There's nothing in the world that can do what the gospel does. In fact, uh, Peter and Paul, okay, the two uh, disciples of Jesus, after Jesus died and, and rose again, they go back to the temple, the same place that Jeremiah was. They go back to the temple and they begin to preach the gospel. And it's amazing. The exact same thing happens to them. Look at this. This is in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 20. He says, um, they're, they're preaching the gospel. The, the chief priests of the temple, they, they actually arrest them and they bring them in to, uh, uh, to their courts. And in verse 18, it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Listen to this. I love this. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are so compelled by the message of the gospel, so transformed by it that they said, they said to them, like, look, we can't help it. We have to tell people about what God has done. We have to tell people about who Jesus is, and what he's done for us. Church, this year, uh, you're going to be challenged in some ways this year. You're going to be challenged, uh, I think, from this pulpit. You're going to be challenged to tell other people about what God has done for you. And I think we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready to tell people about what Jesus has done for us. And some of us may be sitting in here thinking like, okay, I, I don't know that I'm ready for that. I don't know, I don't feel like I know the gospel well enough or I don't know how it's transformed my life enough to be able to talk about it with that kind of, with that kind of enthusiasm and compulsion. So if that's you, that I, this is what I want to challenge you. I want to give you just a couple ideas of ways to, to start moving in that direction. First of all, church, saturate yourself in the gospel. Saturate yourself in the gospel. We are blessed because we, we go to a church where every single week the gospel is preached. And I'll tell you one thing that I've learned about, about this. Is that the longer that I go without hearing the gospel, the longer that I go without hearing that I'm a sinner that's saved by grace, the more, the, the higher I think of myself, <laughs> right? Like the more, I, the more I think that I can actually achieve the things that God wants me to do without him the more I think that I could actually receive the blessings of God without him. And the truth is that I can't. None of us can. And so guys, we, we need to come back to the gospel every week. I want to I challenge you, be at church every week. And not, not out of some sort of obligation, but come here to hear the gospel because you realize that you need it. Come here to, to hear the gospel because you know that without it, that you start thinking too much of yourself. You start thinking too highly of yourself. 
but come here and be reminded of the gospel that we are sinners saved by grace in God. He has made us his children because he loves us. And that's it. And that's all we need. We can just live and bask in that reality that Jesus Christ has made us his children. So that's the first thing. The second is really let the gospel message shape you. Saturate yourself in the gospel, but let it shape you into, into, more into the image of Christ. In fact, I think that the gospel message can actually help us in decision-making every single day. It can help us with combating sin. It can help us in all kinds of ways in, in our life. And you know what? I mean, honestly, if you're in a D group, this is really one of the primary focuses of, of our D groups is to, is to look at the gospel and to see how it helps us in all of these different ways. This is, this is the point of all of this. And so I want to challenge you, you guys, let the gospel message shape you. Let it transform you and make you more and more into the image of Christ because it is so much more than just what brings us to salvation. It shapes our worldview and it transforms us. The last thing is really that, that we'll just begin to see how, God, how we start telling people about the gospel, about what God has done. I think, that, I think that the more that you saturate yourself in the gospel and the more that you allow it to shape you, you'll be surprised to see how easy it is to turn your conversations towards God, towards Christ. You'll be surprised to see like how you just want to talk about it more and more. I think you'll be surprised to see that you end up being a lot more like Peter and John when, after they were arrested. And they were, uh, and they were before the Sanhedrin, and they said, "We can't help but talk about this." Isn't that what we want? Like, isn't that isn't that what we want as Christians to be that kind of a Christian, that kind of a contagious uh, Christian every single day? Imagine what your life would be like if that was the reality for you, where where you just couldn't stop talking about it. I mean, wow, that would be so cool. And then. Like, what would be different about your life? What would be different in your family? What would be different in your workplace? What an incredible vision that would be for us to, to start moving that way in 2019. Well, here's the last thing. We saw that the gospel is not popular. We also see how the gospel compels us to, uh, to preach it. But the gospel finally is God's promises that are fulfilled. God's promises fulfilled. See, Jeremiah, he was persecuted for his faith and obedience to God. And he, we saw that section there where he really wrestles in his heart over really his loyalty to this message. Is, is he going to keep preaching it? In the end, he reminds himself not of his own identity, not of his own strength, not of his own ability, but he reminds himself of who the Lord is. He reminds himself of the identity and strength of the Lord and remembering who God is and what God has promised him motivates him to trust God in this time of persecution. Look at verse 11 of Jeremiah 20. He says, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. That's what he says. The image here is this image of a of a strong man in battle, someone who strikes terror in the heart of his enemies. It says, the Lord is a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not overcome me. 
They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them for to you I have committed my cause. And then he praises God. He says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. I love this idea because he, he's reminding himself of who God is. He's like, you know, I know that God is holy and he's righteous and he's just and he is the one that is going to exact vengeance on his enemies. He's the one that's going to bring that justice to bear, right? And so Jeremiah trusts God with this. He's like, you know, I could seek retaliation. I can go after Peshur. But I'm not going to do that. At the end of verse 12, what does he say? He says, for to you I have committed my cause. I have made known to you, God, my case. And so I've laid that at your feet because you are the just judge of the universe. And you are the one that is going to fulfill this promise of bringing justice to the world. What's really happening here is Jeremiah is trusting in a future act of God's justice. One that he hasn't seen yet, but he knows will come because he knows his God. He knows that God is holy and just and righteous. He's looking then to the Lord's holy character and to his promises of bringing righteousness and justice to the world. And he's awaiting the day when that justice will be revealed. Well, we have a distinct advantage over Jeremiah See, Jeremiah, he had, to, he had to look forward. He had to, to look to the hope of that day when that justice would come. But see, we get to look back on it. Because the day that that justice came was the day that the Lord poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. In fact, this entire account of Jeremiah and his unjust persecution is actually a foretaste of what Christ would have to endure for us to bring us that justice. Think of the parallels between Christ and Jeremiah. Because there's many. And you look at this. Christ and Jeremiah were both commanded by God to testify to the truth. To preach his word. They were both convicted as blasphemers by the chief priests in the temple. They were both beaten. They were both publicly shamed. They both even experienced an internal struggle over moving forward with their mission. Think about that. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And there, there was an internal struggle there. But see, Jeremiah looking, looking forward, trusting in this coming justice that God was going to have over his enemies. See, Jesus Christ on the cross he actually accomplished that justice. He accomplished it for us, taking the full weight of God's judgment upon himself so that any one of God's enemies, even you and me, could place their trust in the salvation of Christ and be spared from the wrath of God. And this is the gospel. I mean, it, it, it's almost a little cliche, but we could go right back to John three sixteen, right? It's exactly what it says, that God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Church, you were once enemies of God. But if you have put your faith in Christ, you have now become friends of God. In fact, you are called his children. And so may you let the reality of the gospel sink so deeply into your heart and mind today. And may that reality mold you and transform you more and more into the image of Christ. And from that, my prayer for you is that this reality would compel you so that you could not stop talking about the gospel, that you could not stop talking about what God has done for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I praise you. I praise you for your gospel because, Lord, without it, we are lost. Without this incredible message of your love for us, this incredible message that of your redemption on us, Lord, we have nothing. And so God, every week when we come into this room, would you remind us that we are sinners saved by grace, that we were once enemies who were made friends, who were made children. God, every day when we open your word, would you show us the gospel? Would you show us the finished work of Christ? And God, would you, would you shape us and change us so that we are so compelled to preach the gospel, to tell others about your goodness and love, that we can't help but talk about it. Lord, we love you and we trust you with all of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.